Uh, we pray that you would. We pray that you would uh, make clear to us what our role and purpose is, uh, primarily at least in uh, this world uh, as Christians. Uh, please help me to be uh, speak faithfully and clearly, as we've just read in Colossians, faithfully and clearly as I ought, making uh, Christ clear. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, Ricky's already asked that kind of big question. What would you say is your purpose in life, your, your mission in life? Uh, the truth is, I, I don't know how you went with that little conversation, but actually most of us probably consciously don't think about that question that much. I suppose, I mean, I'm sitting around going, what's my purpose in my life? What's my mission in life? Perhaps not in those words, but I reckon we do have a nagging sense of well, what is life all about? Like, what, what, what am I supposed to do with this life I have? What, what role am I supposed to be playing? What's my place in the world? Those kind of questions. And I think when we have those kind of questions, uh, we can basically answer them in two ways. Uh, the first way is by taking what I would call the choose-your-own-adventure approach. Uh, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. Uh, I don't know if you were also familiar with choose-your-own-adventure books. Uh, they were all the rage back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, but the basic idea of the choose-your-own-adventure book is that you are the main character in the story. You, you're cast in that role. Uh, and so the plot of the book, the, the ending of the book, uh, all of it is dictated by the choices that you make on the way through. So if you choose to go down this path, you might have to skip 10 pages and then up, and you end up at this ending, right? But if uh, you choose to go down this path, you only have to skip seven pages and you end up at a completely different ending. Right? So, and those books, uh, of course, I reckon that they were quite popular because they made you the star of the show. They put you in there as the main character. We love that kind of thing. Uh, but as good as those books were, uh, at least for me, I'm someone who likes to see the whole picture. And as I was reading the book, there was always that nagging sense that I was missing out on something. You know, you make the choice, you skip these seven pages, but what happened in those seven pages, you see? Right? You were missing out on things. You were missing large chunks of the story. You just couldn't see the big picture. And I reckon lots of people, uh, even people who profess to be Christians, take this choose-your-own-adventure approach to life. They live their lives as if there's no ultimate purpose in the universe, no big story that ties everything together, so the best they can do is create their own story, create their own purpose through their own choices. So this choose-your-own-adventure approach tells you that you can find your purpose in life either without reference to God at all or with God playing some small part in your life, like a, a supporting actor in the, in the great movie of your life. Right? You're the star of the show and you just get God in for some little bits along the way. But of course that is very different to the biblical approach. The biblical approach uh, says that we can find our purpose, not in God playing some small part in our story, but in us playing our small part in his story. In his story where Christ is the star of the show, where Christ is supreme, where Christ is the main character, not us. So what is God's story? What, what is God's great plan for the universe? Well, Paul's given us a glimpse of that in the book of Colossians, right? Chapter 1, uh, verses 15 to 20. If you've got a Bible open, you can flick back to chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Uh, this is like a, a preview uh, of where the whole world is headed. 
Right? And Paul says in those verses that in the end, God is going to reconcile, he's going to put back together all the pieces of our sinful and broken world under the supremacy of Christ. Right? Under Christ as Lord. It's living under Christ as Lord that will set everything right. That's the end to which everything is headed. Uh, so in Paul's mind, it's very clear that Christ, not us, is the main character in God's story. God's working all things. Uh, he's working through everyone uh, until everyone, either willingly or not, sees the supremacy of Christ, his son, until they confess that he is Lord. So that's why the memory verse uh, that we've been looking at through our Colossians, verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, uh, that says that, uh, that this process of the world being put back together under Christ as Lord is happening as two things happen, right? As people receive Christ Jesus as Lord and live with Christ Jesus as Lord. And really that holds together uh, this second half of the book of Colossians because in chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 4, verse 1, Paul's been teaching, teaching the Colossians who've already received Christ Jesus as Lord, they're already Christians, and he's been saying, this is how you have to live with Christ Jesus as Lord in every part of your life. Right? He's talked about marriage and parenting and work, all sorts of different things. Right? But in today's passage, he shifts his focus uh, to talk not so much about receiving Christ, uh, living with Christ Jesus as Lord, right? that's kind of Christian maturity and fullness, uh, but about receiving Christ Jesus as Lord, right? Christian mission. That's what his focus is in this passage, that more and more people might join this gathering of people who are confessing that Christ Jesus is Lord. And so into this passage, Paul's urging the Colossians to find their purpose, and not by asking God to play some small part uh, in their story, but by asking them to play their small part in God's big story of gathering up everything under the Lordship of Christ to see more and more people uh, confess Christ Jesus as Lord. So, so what is our part in God's story. What's the role we're supposed to play? Uh, we're going to touch on verses 7 to 18 today. This is why, but I, I, we're really going to focus on verses 2 to 6, which is why I got uh, Stu to read verses 2 to 6. And in verses 2 to 6, we see that our part in God's story is really about two things. Uh, first, it's about uh, talking, uh, speaking to God about people. And second, it's about speaking to people about God. Uh, that's a great summary that comes from a guy named uh, Dick Lucas. So first, verses 2 to 4, it's about speaking to God about people. It's about praying. Uh, let me read uh, in verse 2, Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer, uh, being watchful and thankful. Uh, well, that word, devote yourselves, really means to be fixed to something, to be, to be kind of fixated on something, to be deeply attached to something. Uh, so Paul's saying that that should be the attitude of our prayers for people who aren't Christians yet. We should be devoted to it. We should be fixated on it, really persistent in it. Uh, it reminds me a bit of, of the parable Jesus told in Luke chapter 18. You can look it up at later on. It's the start of Luke 18. Uh, it's the one about a persistent widow and the unjust judge. Uh, the point of the parable is that if an unjust judge is willing to answer the persistent pleas of this widow that he doesn't even know or care about... How much more will our Heavenly Father be willing to answer our persistent pleas, our devoted pleas, as his children who he does know and he does care about deeply? So the encouragement is to be devoted in your prayers, to be persistent. Right? Don't give up. Right? It might seem hopeless, but you just never know. 
when that person that you know and love might turn and put their trust in Jesus. But hang in there. Be devoted in your prayers. And be watchful in your prayers. Be watchful in your prayers. Uh, that word watchful has the sense of being on guard, being ready, being prepared. And throughout the New Testament, it's used in the context of saying, be watchful because Christ could come back at any moment. He could return at any moment. But this verse is a little bit different because in this verse, Paul's not so much saying that we should have our lives in order. Right? That's the usual context for this. Right? Christ could come back at any moment, so watch how you live. Right? Make sure your life's ready to go. You're in the welcoming party for Christ's return. And of course, we should, we should do that. But here Paul's saying that we should see our prayers as a means of kind of keeping watch over the lives of others. We should be watchful in our prayers. Right? Praying that more and more people would come to know Christ and be ready for his return. So we're to be devoted in our prayers, Paul says, watchful in our prayers. And third, uh, thankful in our prayers. Uh, thankful, uh, thankfulness has been a really big theme in Colossians. I'll give you some verses you can look up later on. Uh, chapter 1, verse 12. Look, look that up. Paul called us to give joyful thanks to our Father. Uh, chapter 2, verse 7, Paul said that as we experience uh, the fullness that we have in Christ, uh, we'll be overflowing with thankfulness. Uh, chapter 3, verses 15, 16, and 17, three times Paul said, uh, and be thankful with gratitude. Be thankful. Right, so Colossians is full of thankfulness. And here Paul says that as we pray these, these prayers for people uh, who don't know the Lord Jesus, uh, we can pray with thanks. Oh, we can pray with thanks, but because any time someone gets closer to trusting in Jesus or actually does trust in Jesus, we know that that's completely God's work. It's nothing to do with us. All glory to him, all thanks and praise to him for opening someone's heart and mind to trust in Jesus. So we can pray with thanks. So perhaps we can, we can take a moment to reflect a little bit. I wonder who you would say uh, you're devoted to praying for. Uh, at the start of the year, we handed out these mission hands. I, I don't know whether this grabbed you as a concept, but the whole point was to write down the names of, of five people that you know and love uh, and that you would really love to see become a Christian this year. Right? I, I guess I, I wonder how you've gone doing that. I'm sure some of you are great. Like I know many of you are real kind of prayer warriors. You're very devoted in your prayers. Uh, but perhaps others here, you're a little bit like me. You've dropped the ball a bit on that. I actually had to confess that during the week as I was preparing this sermon. Oh God, I'm sorry that I've been so consumed with my worries and plans and my busyness that I, I just haven't been praying regularly for these people. It slipped off my radar. Please help me, God. And maybe you have to confess that to God today. Maybe you have to pray that today. Start praying today. It's certainly a prayer that God is eager to answer, isn't it? Right? We've seen God's great purpose for the universe is to see more and more people come to know Christ and confess that he's Lord. God is eager to answer this prayer. It's right in line with his purpose. And since our church has been planted, God has answered this prayer. We've seen him answer this prayer this year. Earlier in the year, we, I baptised Grace and Vicky, for example, people who've come to know Christ. We've heard about Alex and Tim today who've come to know Christ. So as a church, we can speak to God about people. We can pray 
for people who don't know Christ with real devotion and watchfulness and thankfulness. Now that's the encouragement of verse 2. In verses 3 and 4, Paul especially urges the Colossians uh, to pray for him and for his whole mission team. So look in verse 3. Paul says, uh, And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. So when Paul says pray for us, I, I think he's, of course, he's talking about himself and Timothy. Right at the start of Colossians, we saw that it was those guys who were writing the letter. Uh, but I think he's also talking about the broader network of relationships. Uh, many of the people he mentions in verses 7 to 18. And we're looking, not going to look at verses 7 to 18 in detail, but if you have a look there, you can see that there's uh, Tychicus and Onesimus. Right, that's verses 7 to 9. Uh, those are the men who are going to deliver this letter to the Colossians. And then there's Aristarchus and Mark and, uh, and Jesus, who is called Justice. Right, they're in verse 11. Paul refers to them as co-workers in the kingdom of God. Then there's Epaphras, right? verses 12 and 13. Oh, we know from chapter 1, verse 6, that Epaphras is the man who, who first proclaimed the gospel to the Colossians. They became Christians. And since then, he's essentially been acting as their pastor. These are the kind of... Paul mentions Luke and Demas and so on. Right? So, so Paul wants the Colossians to be devoted in praying for this whole network of relationships. If the, if the message of the gospel is going to keep going forward, it's going to be a team effort. Sure, Paul might be leading the charge, but it's going to take a whole team. So Paul says, pray for us. And the reason he wants them to pray uh, is that God might open a door for their message. And now there's a couple of, I mean, people debate about what, what is this door. It could be a literal door. Right? Paul's in prison. In a second, we're going to see that he's in chains. So, so you know, maybe Paul's writing, uh, so, uh, asking them to pray that the prison door would be thrown open, that he'd be released so he can proclaim the gospel more freely. Or, or maybe, like in Philippians chapter 1, uh, Paul just wants to make the most of the gospel opportunities while he's actually in prison. So in Philippians 1, he talks about how the whole prison guard has come to know that he's in prison because of Christ. Because while he's in prison, every time the door opens, he can't stop talking about Jesus. Right? That's Paul. Or, or maybe it's more of a metaphorical door, like a, like a picture of the door in someone's heart and mind that God has to unlock so that the message of Christ can enter in. Whatever Paul has in mind, probably a combination of all those things, it's clear that when God opens the door, it's the message. Right? It's the word, Paul says, the good news of the gospel that must enter. Right? Nothing else. It, it, it's the word that must enter. Because Paul knows that it is the gospel that has the power to bring people to know Christ. And he says that this message that uh, that uh, uh, that uh, Mr. he says this message goes through the door as he proclaims what he calls the mystery of Christ, the mystery of Christ. Uh, in chapter one, verses 26 and 27, Paul said this mystery of Christ had had previously been hidden, but now in Christ it had been made known. And in verse 27, if you've got a Bible, you can flick to chapter one, verse 27. He summarized the mystery as being Christ in us or in you. The hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, Christ in you, the you there. We know from the start of Ephesians chapter 3 that the you there uh, is Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Gentiles. This is the great mystery for a Jewish person. 
that Christ could, uh, by the power of his spirit, could forgive and cleanse and, and actually dwell inside not just Jews but Gentiles. Gentiles like the Colossians. Gentiles probably like most of us here. Right, so this mystery of Christ is that by the power of his spirit, Christ can actually be in us. Right? But also, uh, Ephesians 1 verse 14 tells us that Christ's spirit being in us is just a deposit. like It's a down payment on the full inheritance we'll receive when Christ returns. Right? So that's what Paul calls in chapter 1 verse 27, our hope of glory. So that's this great mystery. Right, that we can be cleansed and forgiven and filled with God's Spirit. Christ can be in us and we can have this great hope of glory, eternal life with God and his people uh, forever. And Paul says in verse 3 that any time God opens a door, that is the message he wants to proclaim. The mystery of Christ. And notice how amazing that is. So I look at the end of verse 3. Right, Paul says it's because of this message, the mystery of Christ that he is in chains. You see what he's saying to the Colossians? He's saying, yeah, I, I want you to be devoted in praying that God would keep opening doors for the gospel, that I might proclaim this mystery of Christ. Uh, but you need to know that if God keeps opening those doors, uh, the other door that will be opened is the door to prison. You see. The door to chains, to suffering. But as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 9, that is no reason to pray because even when he is in chains, God's word is never chained. It continues to bear fruit. So be devoted in praying, Paul says. And in verse 4, he urges the Colossians to pray that he might proclaim that word clearly, the message about Christ, literally that he would make it known clearly. Now, Paul knows that his ministry is profoundly spiritual. We've got to keep this big purpose in mind, I think. We've got to minimise, I'm just talking to someone about Jesus. No, 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 Paul knows that as he proclaims God's word, the mystery of Christ is revealed, it's made known. God has made known the mystery of Christ, but every time Paul proclaims the mystery of Christ, it's like it's made known again. It's revealed to someone's heart. You know, the word revelation there is the way we get the word apocalypse. Same Greek word. There you go, Tim. I've got to throw in a Greek word for you today, wherever you are. Right, apocalypse. Right, it's about revealing. So Paul's saying that, that God has revealed this mystery of Christ, and now he's saying that every time he proclaims the gospel, it's an apocalyptic moment. That mystery is revealed as God opens people's hearts and minds, and they welcome the Lord Jesus Christ in. So Paul sees himself as being caught up in God's great purposes for the universe. You see, playing his role in this revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ to all. And as Paul proclaims this mystery of Christ, as he should, he says he proclaims it as he should. Notice that. He understands that God has revealed the mystery of Christ to him, and so there's an obligation on him. He should make that mystery clear to as, to as many people as possible. So that's really verses 2 to 4. Paul urges the Colossians to speak to God about people, to give themselves to a life of prayer, being devoted, being watchful, being thankful, uh, that many who aren't Christians would be gathered up under Christ as Lord. 
Uh, before we move on to verses 5 and 6, I just wanted to say about verses 3 and 4, I wanted to encourage you to pray for people who, like Paul and his team, have been set aside to do the work of evangelism. Make these people a regular part of your prayers. Pray for Rob. He shared last week. Pray for Rob as he seeks to proclaim Christ in the city with City Bible Forum. I pray for Alicia as she proclaims Christ at La Trobe Uni. I pray for the Jessops and other of our mission partners as they proclaim Christ in Japan. I pray for the Vinicums as they prepare to proclaim Christ up on Groot Island. Uh, and please do, please do pray for me. I need all the prayer I can get. I pray for others in our church uh, who engage in proclaiming Christ that others might join us in declaring that Christ is Lord. Please pray for us. Uh, in verses 5 and 6, Paul switches to talking uh, about speaking to people about God, really uh, evangelistic uh, conversations. Uh, it's worth noting that these verses are addressed to the whole church. Right, so Paul's talked a bit about himself, like as the special apostle, uh, but Paul clearly expects every Christian to be engaged in evangelism in some way. Not in exactly the same way as him, but in some way. Look in verse 5. Uh, be wise, Paul says, in the way that you act towards outsiders. It's clear that Paul's talking about evangelism. He uses that word outsiders. Uh, personally, that's not a word that I would use today, like my, my go-to to describe someone who's not a Christian. Uh, but throughout the New Testament, that is a, the word that they use uh, to describe someone who's not trusting in Christ. Right? They're, they're often described uh, as an outsider. So how is it that we as Christians are supposed to relate to people who aren't Christians? Paul says first, we're to be wise. Well, literally, to be wise in the way that we walk. Which is just another way of saying, uh, watch, watch your lifestyle, your behavior, your actions carefully. So that, that's Paul's first aspect of evangelism. It's how we live. And I, don't, I don't think that's much of a surprise, is it? If you live your life as a Christian, isn't it true that often uh, people are first attracted to the way you walk before they want to listen to your talk? Isn't that true? They're, they're, you're, uh, and certainly they, those two things have to match up. Uh, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 5. He says to his disciples, uh, You are the light of the world. A town uh, built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand uh, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others. What does it mean to let your light shine? That they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Right, so, so Jesus assumes that, his, uh, that people will see the good deeds of his people, his disciples, uh, and, and that people will be drawn to those good deeds, that they'll be attracted to them, that, that they'll find uh, them beautiful even. But notice what, also, what Jesus also knows. He knows that if we feel under pressure, if we feel marginalized, if we feel like we're going to be rejected, uh, as I'm sure many of you do, uh, you might be tempted to hide your good deeds, to hide your faith, to, to put your light under a bowl. So let's hear Jesus' encouragement. We are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. So let your light shine. Some of you have to come out of the closet as Christians in your workplace. You're doing all sorts of good things, but no one has any idea that that's because you're a Christian. 
people need to know that if there's any light in your life, it's because you're walking with Christ. Not because there's something particularly special about you. In the end, we want people to be drawn to Christ, not us. He's the main character in the story, you see. Uh, this, uh, and so in the end, uh, as people uh, ask questions uh, about our good deeds, uh, Paul says we have to say something. That's what he means when he says we've got to make the most of every opportunity. Uh, the word opportunity there is, uh, one of the Greeks had lots of words for time, right? this is one of them, uh, and it's really uh, about a, a unique moment, a, a critical opportunity. And I reckon if you're a Christian, uh, you probably experience this all the time. Right, you're at the work or at uni or at the cafe, you're at the park, you, and someone just says to you, oh, what do you, you know, tomorrow morning, right? someone says, oh, what, what did you do yesterday? What did you do on the weekend? Someone says, oh, what did you do last night? And you know that you could say, oh, I went to church or I went to Bible study. It's kind of right on the tip of your tongue, but you walk away and say nothing. Or you talk about everything else you did on the weekend, except you leave out the fact that you went to church. And of course, we're really good at rationalising this. You know, we get there and we go, oh, it's all, they weren't quite ready yet. I'm just being wise in the way I walk towards outsiders. You know, it's all part of my big long-term evangelistic strategy. I'll say something one day, right? And there might be some truth in that. There might be some real wisdom in that. But let's be honest, often there's some real cowardice in that. At least there is for me. Right? Paul encourages us to, to make the most of every opportunity by God's grace. And I reckon the key to being able to do that is seeing Christ as supreme. That's the, the big theme of Colossians. Right? If, if I had this magnifying glass last week. If the magnifying glass of your life is on Christ, right? if he's the one who looms largest in your life, if it's his opinion that matters most, his verdict that matters most to you, then you'll, you'll experience much greater freedom in talking about him. Because the opinion of everyone else, it's not that that doesn't matter at all, but it'll be completely relativized. You'll be like, oh, I care about it, but I don't care about it as much as the Lord Jesus Christ. So I can speak freely. And I know his approval of me is secure. So as we live with Christ Jesus as Lord and see him as supreme increasingly in our own lives, we'll be liberated to help other people receive Christ Jesus as Lord as we make the most of every opportunity. Uh, in verse 6, Paul zooms in on exactly how we should speak. Look at there, he says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Uh, let your conversation there um, really, that's literally let your word, right, exactly the same, uh, let your message, exactly the same as what Paul says in verse 3 about his own proclamation. He wants to proclaim the message, the word, uh, and he's saying in our conversations, as we seek to leave, uh, live wisely amongst people who aren't Christians, we'll have opportunities not just to speak about the weather or our children or, or the latest work project, but about Jesus, the message of the gospel. That's evangelism, Paul saying. And he says we're to take those opportunities in a way that is full of grace. Right? And how could it be any other way? Well, we've got a message that is full of grace, so surely our manner ought to be full of grace. There ought not be a disconnect there. 
There are some people that are real keyboard warriors. So this applies to Facebook, to emails. Right, let's not be rude or proud or arrogant. Let's be full of grace. Let's not back off on the truth, but let's be full of grace. And as well as being full of grace, Paul says our conversation should be seasoned with salt, which is basically a way of saying, uh, do your best not to be boring. Essentially, that's what Paul's saying. Right? Try, try to say something that, that grabs people a bit, like you've sprinkled a bit of salt in their lunch, you see. Oh, I didn't expect that, you see. He's saying, let your conversation be like that. There's all sorts of stuff we could unpack. I'm really keen to talk about it. What might that look like? Don't have time to unpack all the practicalities of that, but that's the point. Think about what could I say that might engage someone with the message of Jesus, not being formulaic or or boring. And look in verse 6. Paul says that the purpose of our conversations being gracious and salty uh, is that we might, might know how to answer everyone. Uh, once again, there's a little bit of nuance here. He says uh, that we might know how we should answer everyone. What he literally says, same, same words there as it was about his ministry. So in verse 4, Paul asked the Colossians to pray that he would proclaim the message of Christ as he should, clearly as he should. And here he says that the Colossians, that we should seek to give an answer to everyone. Right? We should. But it's important to notice that difference, isn't it? Right? Paul does not expect everyone to be like him. I don't expect all of you to be like me, to be wanting to be up the front proclaiming the gospel. But he does expect everyone to live wisely amongst people who aren't Christians and be ready to give an answer to any question that might come up. That's his expectation. That's the obligation, he says, upon every Christian. So once again, we can talk about that. What does that look like? To be able to give an answer, to be able to be gracious and salty in conversation. Let me encourage you, don't take the choose-your-own-adventure approach to life. I don't try to find your purpose either by rejecting God altogether or by asking God to be a supporting actor in the great movie of your life story where you're the star of the show. Right, that feels good for a while, but it just won't work because it's not how God designed you, you see. God designed you to find your purpose uh, in playing your part in his story where Christ is the main character where he is the star of the show and you're playing the supporting role, seeing that he is supreme. And what we've seen in this passage is that we can play our role in God's big story by speaking to him about people and speaking to people about him. And I pray that as we keep doing that as a church together, that we might see more and more people, we might have the joy of seeing more and more people acknowledging Christ as supreme, confessing that he's Lord. Let me pray. And I think we'll sing. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, We thank you that uh, in being uh, Christians, uh, we know that that there is a great purpose for our universe. Uh, That you've revealed that to us, Father, that all things are going to be gathered up under Christ, your Son, as supreme. And we pray, Father, that we would uh, play our role in that, your great purpose. Uh, As we give ourselves to praying, Uh, for all those that we know and love and we think of even now uh, who don't know Christ and certainly don't know him as supreme. 
Uh, Father, we long for them to do so, to receive him as Lord. And Father, we pray uh, that we would do that as we uh, continue to uh, engage in conversations with people, to give an answer uh, as each opportunity comes up. May that be an aspect of us living with Christ Jesus as Lord. Uh, May we see him as, as increasingly supreme in our vision, magnified in our vision, such that we experience greater freedom to speak about him to others. Uh, for their sake and for your glory. Amen.